Welcome to this Uvula audio presentation of Thomas Merton's The Seven-Story Mountain, Volume 6. Chapter 4, The Children of the Marketplace, Part 1. I had a long way to go. I had more to cross than the Atlantic. Perhaps the Styx, being only a river, does not seem so terribly wide. It is not its width that it makes it difficult to cross, especially when you are trying to get out of hell and not in. And so this time, even though I got out of Europe, I still remained in hell, but it was not for want of trying. It was a stormy crossing. When it was possible, I walked on the wide, empty decks that streamed with spray, or I would get up forward where I could see the bows blast their way headfirst into the mountains of water that bore down upon us and I would hang onto the rail while the ship reeled and soared into the wet sky, riding the sea that swept under us while every stanchion and bulkhead groaned and complained. We got onto the Grand Banks, the seas calmed, and there was a fall of snow, and the snow lay on the quiet decks and made them white in the darkness of the evening. And because of the peacefulness of the snow, I imagined that my new ideas were breeding within me an interior peace. The truth is, I was in the thick of a conversion. It was not the right conversion, but it was a conversion. Perhaps it was a lesser evil. I don't doubt much that it was, but it was not, for all that, much of a good. I was becoming a communist. Stated like that, it sounds pretty much the same as if I said, I was growing a mustache. As a matter of fact, I was still unable to grow a mustache. Or I did not dare to try, and I suppose my communism was about as mature as my face, as the sour, perplexed English face in the photo on my quota card. However, as far as I know, this was about as sincere and complete a step to moral conversion as I was then able to make with my own lights and desires, such as they were then. A lot of things had happened to me since I had left the relative seclusion of Oakham, and had been free to indulge all my appetites in the world, and the time had come for a big readjustment in my values. I could not evade that truth. I was too miserable, and it was self-evident there was too much wrong with my strange, vague, selfish hedonism. It did not take much reflection on the year I had spent at Cambridge to show me that all my dreams of fantastic pleasures and delights were crazy and absurd and that everything I had reached out for had turned to ashes in my hands, and that I myself, into the bargain, had turned out to be an extremely unpleasant sort of person, vain, self-centered, dissolute, weak, irresolute, undisciplined, sensual, obscene, and proud. I was a mess. Even the sight of my own face in a mirror was enough to disgust me. When I came to ask myself the reasons for all this, the ground was well prepared. My mind was already facing what seemed to be an open door out of my spiritual jail. It was some four years since I had first read the Communist Manifesto, and I had never entirely forgotten about it. One of those Christmas vacations at Strasbourg, I had read some books about Soviet Russia, how all the factories were working overtime, and all the ex-Mujiks wore great big smiles on their faces, welcoming Russian aviators on their return from polar flights bearing the boughs of trees in their hands. Then I often went to Russian movies, which were pretty good from the technical point of view, although probably not so good as I thought they were in my great anxiety to approve of them. Finally, I had in my mind the myth that Soviet Russia 
was the friend of all the arts, and the only place where true art could find a refuge in a world of bourgeois ugliness. Wherever I got that idea is hard to find out, and how I managed to cling to it for so long is harder still when you consider all the photos for everyone to see showing the red square with gigantic pictures of Stalin hanging on the walls of the world's ugliest buildings, not to mention the views of the projected monster monument to Lenin, like a huge mountain of soap sculpture, and the little father of communism standing on top of it, sticking out on one of his hands. Then, when I went to New York in the summer, I found the new masses lying around the studios of my friends. As a matter of fact, a lot of the people I met were either party members or close to being so. So now, when the time came for me to take spiritual stock of myself, it was natural that I should do so by projecting my whole spiritual condition into the sphere of economic history and the class struggle. In other words, the conclusion I came to was that it was not so much I myself that was to blame for my unhappiness, but the society in which I lived. I considered the person that I now was, the person that I had been at Cambridge, and that I had made of myself. And I saw clearly enough that I was the product of my times, my society, and my class. I was something that had been spawned by the selfishness and irresponsibility of the materialistic century in which I lived. However, what I did not see was that my own age and class only had an accidental part to play in this. They gave my egoism and pride and my other sins a peculiar character of weak and supercilious flippancy proper to this particular century. Uh, but that was only on the surface. Underneath, it was the same old story of greed and lust and self-love of the three concupiences bred in the rich, rotted undergrowth of what is technically called the world in every age, in every class. If any man love the world, the charity of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world is concupiscence of the flesh and concupiscence of the eyes and the pride of life. That is to say, all men who live only according to their five senses and seek nothing beyond the gratification of their natural appetites for pleasure and reputation and power cut themselves off from that charity which is the principle of all spiritual vitality and happiness because it alone saves us from the barren wilderness of our own abominable selfishness. It is true that the materialistic society, the so-called culture that has evolved under the tender mercies of capitalism, has produced what seems to be the ultimate limit of this worldliness, and nowhere, except perhaps in the analogous society of pagan Rome, has there ever been such a flowering of cheap and petty and disgusting lusts and vanities as in the world of capitalism, where there is no evil that is not fostered and encouraged for the sake of making money. We live in a society whose whole policy is to excite every nerve of the human body and keep it at its highest pitch of artificial tension, to strain every human desire to the limit, and to create as many new desires and synthetic passions as possible in order to cater to them with products of our factories and printing presses and movie studios and all the rest. Being the son of an artist, I was born the sworn enemy of everything that could obviously be called bourgeois, and now I only had to dress up that aversion in economic terms and extend it to cover more ground than it had ever covered before, namely to include anything that could be classified as semi-fascist.
like D.H. Lawrence and many of the artists who thought they were rebels without really being so, and I had my new religion all ready for immediate use. It was an easy and handy religion, too easy in fact. It told me that all the evils of the world were the product of capitalism. Therefore, all that had to be done was to get rid of the evils of the world was to get rid of capitalism. This would not be very hard, for capitalism contained the seeds of its own decay. And that indeed is the very obvious truth which nobody would trouble to deny, even some of the most stupid defenders of the system now in force, for our wars are altogether too eloquent in what they have to say on the subject. An active and enlightened minority, and this minority was understood to be made up of the most intelligent and vital elements of society, was to have the twofold task of making the oppressed class, the proletariat, conscious of their own power and destiny as future owners of all the means of production, and to bore from within in order to gain control of power by every means possible. Some violence, no doubt, would probably be necessary, but only because of the inevitable reaction of capitalism by the use of fascist methods to keep the proletariat in subjection. It was capitalism that was to blame for everything unpleasant, even the violence of the revolution itself. Now, of course, the revolution had already taken the first successful step in Russia. The dictatorship of the proletariat was already set up there. It would have to spread through the rest of the world before it could be said that the revolution had really been a success. But once it had, once capitalism had been completely overthrown, the semi-state, or dictatorship of the proletariat, would itself only be a temporary matter. It would be a kind of guardian of the revolution, a tutor of the new classless society during its minority. But as soon as the citizens of the new classless world had had all the greed educated out of them by enlightened methods, the last vestiges of the state would wither away, and there would be a new world, a new golden age in which all property would be held in common, at least all the capital goods, all the land and means of production and so on, and nobody would desire to seize them for himself. And so there would be no more violence, no more starvation, no more poverty, no more wars, no more misery. Everybody would be happy. Nobody would be overworked. They would all amicably exchange wives whenever they felt like it, and their offspring would be brought up in big, shiny incubators, not by the state, because there wouldn't be any state, but by the great, beautiful, and lovely, delicious, unknown quantity of that new classless society. I don't even think that I was gullible enough to swallow all this business about the ultimate bliss that would follow the withering away of the state, a legend far more naive and far more oversimplified than the happy hunting ground of the most primitive Indians. But I simply assumed that things would be worked out by the right men at the right time. For the moment, what was needed was to get rid of capitalism. The thing that made communism seem so plausible to me was my own lack of logic, which failed to distinguish between the reality of the evils which communism was trying to overcome and the validity of its diagnosis and the chosen cure. For there can be no doubt that modern society is in a terrible condition, and that its wars and depressions and its slums and all its other evils are principally the fruits of an unjust social system, a system that must be reformed and purified or else replaced. However, if you are wrong, does that make me right? If you are bad, does that prove that I am good? The chief weakness of communism is that it is itself only another breed of the same materialism which is the source and root of all the evils which it so clearly sees. 
and it is evidently nothing but another product of the breakdown of the capitalist system. Indeed, it seems to be pieced together out of the ruins of the same ideology that once went into the vast, amorphous intellectual structure underlying capitalism in the 19th century. I don't know how anybody who pretends to know anything about history can be so naive as to suppose that after all these centuries of corrupt and imperfect social systems, there is eventually to evolve something perfect and pure out of them, the good out of the evil, the unchanging and stable and eternal out of the variable and mutable, the just out of the unjust. But perhaps revolution is a contradiction of evolution and therefore means the replacement of the unjust by the just, and of evil by the good. And yet it is still just as naive to suppose that members of the same human species, without having changed anything with their minds, should suddenly turn around and produce a perfect society, when they have never been able in the past to produce anything but imperfection, and at best, the barest shadow of justice. However, as I say, perhaps the hopefulness that suddenly began to swell in my breast as I stood on the deck of this 10-day liner going to New York via Halifax was largely subjective and imaginary. The chance association of my mind with fresh air and the sea and a healthy feeling and a lot of good resolutions coinciding with a few superficial notions of Marxism had made me, like so many others, a communist in my own fancy, and I would become one of the hundreds of thousands of people living in America who are willing to buy an occasional communist pamphlet and listen without rancor to a communist order and to express open dislike of those who attack communism, just because they are aware that there's a lot of injustice and suffering in the world, and somewhere got the idea that communists were the ones who were most sincerely trying to do something about it. Added to this was my own personal conviction, the result of the uncertain and misdirected striving for moral reform, that I must now devote myself to the good of society, apply my mind at least to some extent to the tremendous problems of my time. I don't know how much good there was in this, but I think there was some. It was, I suppose, my acknowledgement of my selfishness and my desire to make reparation for it by developing some kind of social and political consciousness. And at the same time, in my first fervor, I felt myself willing to make sacrifices for this end. I wanted to devote myself to the causes of peace and justice in the world. I wanted to do something positive to interrupt and divert the gathering momentum that was dragging the whole world into another war. And I felt there was something I could do, not alone, but as the member of an active and vocal group. It was a bright, icy cold afternoon when, having passed Nantucket Light, we first saw the long, low, yellow shoreline of Long Island shining palely in the December sun. But when we entered New York Harbor, the lights were already coming on, glittering like jewels in the hard, clear buildings. The great debonair city that was both young and old and wise and innocent shouted in the night as we passed the battery and started up the North River. And I was glad, very glad, to be an immigrant again. I came down onto the dock with a great feeling of confidence and possessiveness, New York, you are mine, I love you. It is the glad embrace she gives her lovers, the big wild city, but I guess ultimately is for their ruin. It certainly did not prove to be any good for me. With my mind in the fervent in which it was, I thought for a moment of registering for courses at the New School for Social Research 
and the shiny black building on 12th Street, but I was easily persuaded that I had better finish out my regular university courses and get a degree, and therefore I entered upon all the complicated preambles to admission to Columbia. I came out of the subway at 116th Street. All around the campus were piles of dirty snow, and I smelled the wet, faintly exhilarating air of Morningside Heights in the wintertime. The big, ugly buildings faced the world with a kind of unpretentious purposefulness, and people hurried in and out of the glass doors with none of the fancy garments of the Cambridge undergraduates. No multicolored ties and blazers and scarves, no tweeds and riding breeches, no affectations of any kind, but only the plain drab overcoats of city masses. You got the impression that all these people were at once more earnest and more humble, poorer, smarter perhaps, certainly more diligent than those I had known at Cambridge. Columbia was, for the most part, stripped of fancy academic ritual. The caps and gowns were reserved for occasions which, as a matter of fact, nobody really had to attend. I only got mixed up in one of them purely by accident, several months after I had acquired my degree, rolled up in a cardboard container through one of the windows of the post office-like registration bureau in University Hall. Compared with Cambridge, this big, sooty factory was full of light and fresh air. There was a kind of genuine intellectual vitality in the air, at least relatively speaking. Perhaps the reason was that most of the students had to work hard to pay for every classroom hour. Therefore, they appreciated what they got, even when there was not much in it to appreciate. Then there was the big, bright, shiny new library with a complicated system of tickets and lights at the main loan desk. And there I soon came out with a great armful of things, books which excited me more than I can now understand. I think it was not the books themselves, but my own sense of energy and resolve that made me think everything was more interesting than it was. What, for instance, did I find to enthrall me in a book about aesthetics by a man called Yirjo Hearn? I cannot remember and even in spite of my almost congenital dislike for Platonism, I was happy with the Enids of Plotinus in Marsilio Ficini's Latin translation. The truth is that there is a considerable difference between Plato and Plotinus, but I am not enough of a philosopher to know what it is. Thank God I shall never again have to try and find out either. But anyway, I dragged this huge volume into the subway and out on the Long Island Railroad to the house in Douglaston, where I had a room with a big glass-enclosed bookcase full of communist pamphlets and books on psychoanalysis, in which the little Vulgate I had once bought in Rome lay neglected and out of place. For some reason, I became intensely interested in Daniel Defoe and read his whole life and dipped into most of the strange journalistic jobs of writing which he did besides Robinson Crusoe. I made a hero for myself out of Jonathan Swift because of his writing, Toward May of that year, I remember going into the Columbia bookstore and selling them a copy of T.S. Eliot's essays and a lot of other things which I was getting rid of in a conscious reaction against artiness, as if all that were too bourgeois for my serious and practical new self. Then, because of the wide general curriculum of an American university, which instead of trying to teach you any one thing completely, strives to give its students a superficial knowledge of everything, I found myself mildly interested in things like geology and economics and interiorly cursing a big, vague course in current events called contemporary civilization, which was imposed on all the sophomores whether they liked it or not. 
Soon, I was full of all the economic and pseudoscientific jargon appropriate to a good Columbia man, and was acclimated to the new atmosphere which I found so congenial. That was true. Columbia, compared to Cambridge, was a friendly place. When you had to go and see a professor or an advisor or a dean about something, he would tell you more or less simply what you needed to know. The only trouble was that you usually had to wait around for about a half an hour before you got a chance to see anybody. But once you did, there were no weird evasions and none of that pompous beating about the bush mixed up with subtle academic illusions and a few dull witticisms, which was what you were liable to get out of almost anybody at Cambridge, where everybody cultivated some special manner of his own and had his own individual and peculiar style. I suppose it was something that you have to expect around a university, this artificiality. For a man to be absolutely sincere with generation after generation of students requires either supernatural simplicity or, in the natural order, a kind of heroic humility. There was, and still is, one man at Columbia, or rather one among several, who was most remarkable for this kind of heroism. I mean Mark Van Doren. The first semester I was at Columbia, just after my 20th birthday, in the winter of 1935, Mark was giving part of the English sequence in one of those rooms in Hamilton Hall with windows looking out between the big columns on the wired-in track on South Field. There were 12 or 15 people with more or less unbrushed hair, most of them with glasses, lounging around. One of them was my friend Robert Gibney. It was a class in English literature, and it had no special bias of any kind. It was simply about what it was supposed to be about, the English literature of the 18th century. And in it, literature was treated not as history, not as sociology, not as economics, not as a series of case histories and psychoanalysis, but mirabile dictu, simply as literature. I thought to myself, who is this excellent man, Van Doren, who being employed to teach literature, teaches just that? talks about writing and about books and poems and plays, does not get off on a tangent about the biographies of the poets or novelists, does not read into their poems a lot of subjective messages which were never there. Who is this man who does not have to fake and cover up a big gulf of ignorance by teaching a lot of opinions and conjectures and useless facts that belong to some other subject? Who is this who really loves what he has to teach and does not secretly detest all literature and poor poetry while pretending to be a professor of it? That Columbia should have in it men like this who, instead of subtly destroying all literature by burying and concealing it under a mass of irrelevancies, really purified and educated the perceptions of their students by teaching them how to read a book and how to tell a good book from a bad, genuine writing from falsity and pastiche, all this gave me a deep respect for my new university. Mark would come into the room and without any fuss would start talking about whatever was to be talked about. Most of the time he asked questions. His questions were very good, and if you tried to answer them intelligently, you found yourself saying excellent things that you didn't know you knew, and that you had not, in fact, known before. He had educed them from you by his questions. His classes were literally education. They brought things out of you. They made your mind produce its own explicit ideas. Do not think that Mark was simply priming his students with thoughts of his own and then making the thoughts stick to their minds by getting them to give it back to him as their own. What he did have was the gift of communicating to them something of his own vital interest in things, something of his manner of approach. But the results were sometimes quite unexpected. 
And by that I mean good in a way that he had not anticipated, casting lights that he had not himself foreseen. Now a man can go for year after year, although Mark was young then and is young now, without having any time to waste in flattering and cajoling his students with any kind of a fancy act or with jokes or with storms of temperament or periodic tirades, whole classes spent in threats and imprecations to disguise the fact that the professor himself has come in unprepared. One who can do without all these non-essentials both honors his vocation and makes it fruitful. Not only that, but his vocation in return perfects and ennobles him. And that is the way it should be, even in the natural order. How much more so in the order of grace? Mark, I know, is no stranger to the order of grace, but considering his work as teacher merely as a mission on the natural level, I can see that Providence was using him as an instrument more directly than he realized. As far as I can see, the influence of Mark's sober and sincere intellect and his manner of dealing with his subject with perfect honesty and objectivity and without evasions was remotely preparing my mind to receive the good seed of scholastic philosophy. And there's nothing strange in this, for Mark himself was familiar at least with some of the modern scholastics, like Maritaine and Gilson, and he was a friend of the American neo-Thomists Mortimer Adler and Richard McKeon, who had started out at Columbia but had had to move to Chicago because Columbia was not ripe enough to know what to make of them. The truth is that Mark's temper was profoundly scholastic in the sense that his clear mind looked directly for the quiddities of things and sought being and substance under the moving of accident and appearances. And for him, poetry was indeed a virtue of the practical intellect and not simply a vague spilling out of the emotions, wasting the soul and perfecting none of our essential powers. It was because of this virtual scholasticism of Marx that he would never permit himself to fall into the naive errors of those who try to read some favorite private doctrine into every poet they like of every nation or every age. And Mark abhorred the smug assurance with which second-rate left-wing critics find undumbrations of dialectical materialism in everyone who ever wrote from Homer and Shakespeare to whomever they happen to like in recent times. If the poet is to their fancy, then he is clearly seen to be preaching the class struggle. If they do not like him, then they are able to show that he was really a forefather of fascism. And all their literary heroes are revolutionary leaders, and all their favorite villains are capitalists and Nazis. It was a very good thing for me that I ran into someone like Mark Van Doren at that particular time, because in my new reverence for communism, I was in danger of docilely accepting any kind of stupidity, provided I thought it was something that paved the way to the Elysian fields of a classless society. Part 2 There was a sort of legend in New York, fostered by the Hearst Papers, that Columbia was a hotbed of communists. All the professors and students were supposed to be Reds, except perhaps the president of the university, Nicholas Murray Butler, living in solitary misery in his big brick house on Morningside Drive. I have no doubt that the poor old man's misery was real and that his isolation from most of the university was very real. But the statement that everybody in the university was a communist was far from true. I know that as far as the faculty was concerned, Columbia University was built up in concentric rings around a solid core of well-meaning, unenlightened stuffiness. The veterans, the beloved of the trustees, and the alumni, and Butler's intellectual guard of honor. 
Then there was an inner circle of sociologists and economists and lawyers whose world was a mystery to me and who exercised a powerful influence in Washington under the New Deal. About all of them and their satellites, I never knew anything, except that they were certainly not communists. Then there was a little galaxy of pragmatists in the School of Philosophy, and all the thousands of their pale spiritual offspring in the jungles of Teachers College and New College. They were not communists either. They cast a mighty influence over the whole American Middle West, and were to a great extent conditioned by the very people whom they were trying to condition, so that Teachers College always stood for colorlessness and mediocrity and plain, hapless behaviorism. These three groups were then the real Columbia. I suppose they all prided themselves on their liberalism, but that is precisely what they were, liberals, not communists, and they brought down upon their heads all the scorn the communists could pour upon them for their position of habitual compromise. I do not understand much about politics. Besides, it would be outside the scope of my present vocation if I tried to make any political analysis of anything. But I can say that there were, at that time, quite a few communists, or communist sympathizers, among the undergraduates, and especially in Columbia College, where most of the smartest students were Reds. The communists had control of the college paper, and were strong on some of the other publications and on the student board. But this campus communism was more a matter of noise than anything else, at least as far as the rank and file were concerned. The spectator was always starting some kind of fight and calling for mass meetings and strikes and demonstrations. Then the fraternity boys, who elected to play fascist in this children's game, would get up in the classroom buildings and turn the fire hoses on the people who were standing around the communist speaker. Then the whole thing would come out in the New York Journal that evening, and all the alumni would choke on their mock turtle soup down at the Columbia Club. By the time I arrived at Columbia, the communists had taken to holding their meetings at the Sundial on 116th Street, in the middle of the wide-open space between the old domed library and the South Field. This was well out of the range of the fire hoses in the journalism building in Hamilton Hall. The first meeting I went to was very tame. It was against Italian fascism. There were one or two speeches by students practicing the art. Those who stood around were mostly members of the National Students League, who were there out of a sense of duty or partisanship. A few curious passers-by stopped while on their way to the subway. There was not much excitement. A girl with a mop of black hair stood by, wearing a placard pronouncing some kind of a judgment on fascism. Someone sold me a pamphlet. Presently, I picked out the quiet, earnest, stocky little man in the gray overcoat, a hatless, black-haired communist from downtown who was running the whole affair. He was not a student. He was the real article. This was his assignment, forming and training the material that offered itself to him at Columbia. He had an assistant, a younger man, and the two of them were kept pretty busy. I went up to him and started to talk. When he actually listened to me and paid attention to my ideas, and seemed to approve my interest, I was very flattered. He got my name and address and told me to come to the meetings of the NSL. Soon I was walking up and down in front of the Casa Italiana, wearing two placards, front and back, accusing Italy of injustice in the invasion of Ethiopia that had either just begun or was just about to begin. Since the accusation was manifestly true, I felt a certain satisfaction in this, silently proclaiming it as a picket. There were two or three of us, for an hour and a half or two hours, we walked up and down the pavement of Amsterdam Avenue in the gray afternoon, bearing our dire accusations, 
while the warm sense of justification in our hearts burned high, even in spite of the external boredom. For during that whole time, no one even came near the Casa Italiana, and I even began to wonder if there was anyone at all inside of it. The only person who approached us was a young Italian who looked as if he might be a freshman football player and tried to get into an argument, but he was too dumb. He went away mumbling that the Hearst papers were very excellent because of the great prizes which they offered in open competition to their many readers. I forget how the picketing ended, whether we waited for someone else to come and take over or whether we just decided we had done enough and took off our signs and went away. But anyway, I had the feeling that I had done something that was good, if only as a gesture, for it certainly did not seem to have accomplished anything. But at least I had made a kind of public confession of faith. I had said that I was against war, against all war, that I believed wars to be unjust, that I thought they could only ruin and destroy the world. Someone will ask where I managed to get all of that out of the placard I was carrying, and as far as I remember, that was the party line that year, at least it was the line that was handed out to the public. I can still hear the tired, determined chanting of students at campus demonstrations. Books, not battleships! No more war! There was no distinction made. It was war as such that we hated and said we wanted no more of it. We wanted books, not battleships, we said. We were all burnt up with the thirst for knowledge, for intellectual and spiritual improvement. And here the wicked capitalists were forcing the government to enrich them by buying armaments and building battleships and planes and tanks, when the money ought to be spent on volumes of lovely cultural books for us students. Here we were on the threshold of life. We cried. Our hands were reaching out for education and culture. Was the government going to put a gun in them and send us off to another imperialistic war? And the line of reasoning behind all this definitely held, in 1935, that all war was imperialistic war. War, according to the party line in 1935, was an exclusively capitalistic amusement. It was purely and simply a device to enrich the armament manufacturers and the intellectual bankers, coining fortunes for them with the blood of the workers and the students. One of the big political events that spring was a peace strike. I was never quite able to understand by virtue of what principle a student could manage to consider himself on strike by cutting a class. Theoretically, I suppose it amounted to a kind of defiance of authority. But it was a defiance that did not cost anybody anything except perhaps the student himself. And besides, I was quite used to cutting classes whenever I felt like it. It seemed to me rather bombastic to dress it up with the name of strike. However, on another of those gray days, we went on to strike, and this time there were several hundred people in the gymnasium, and even one or two members of the faculty got up on the platform and said something. They were not all communists, but all the speeches had more or less the same burden, that it was absurd to even think of such a thing as a just war in our time. Nobody wanted war. There was no justification for any war of any kind on the part of any body, and consequently, if a war did start, it would certainly be the result of a capitalist plot and should be firmly resisted by everybody with any kind of a conscience. That was just the kind of position that attracted me, that appealed to my mind at that time. It seemed to cut across all complexities by its sweeping and uncompromising simplicity. All war was simply unjust, and that was that. The thing to do was to fold your arms and refuse to fight. If everybody did that, there would be no more wars. That cannot seriously have been the communist position, though. But 
At least I thought it was. And anyway, the theme of this particular meeting was the Oxford Pledge. The words of that pledge were written out in huge letters on a great big placard that hung limply in the air over the speaker's platform. And all the speakers waved their arms at it and praised it and repeated it and urged it upon us. And in the end, we all took it and acclaimed it and solemnly pledged ourselves to it. Perhaps everybody has by now forgotten what the Oxford Pledge was. It was a resolution that had been passed by the Oxford Union which said that they, these particular Oxford undergraduates, simply would refuse to fight for king and country in any war whatever. The fact that a majority of those who happened to be at a meeting of a university debating society one evening voted that way certainly did not commit the whole university, or even any one of the voters, to what the resolution said, and it was only other student groups all over the world that had transformed it into a pledge. And this pledge was then taken by hundreds of thousands of students in all kinds of schools and colleges and universities with some kind of solemnity that might make it look as if they were intending to bind themselves by it, the way they were doing in Columbia that day. All this was usually inspired by the Reds, who were very fond of the Oxford Pledge that year. However, the next year, the Spanish Civil War broke out. The next thing I heard about that war was that one of the chief speakers at the 1935 peace strike and the one who had been so enthusiastic about this glorious pledge that we would never fight in any war, was now fighting for the Red Army against Franco. And all the NSL and the young communists were going around picketing everybody who seemed to think that the war in Spain was not holy and sacrosanct and a crusade for the workers against fascism. The thing that perplexes me is this. What did all the people in the gymnasium at Columbia, including myself, think they were doing when we took that pledge? What did a pledge mean to us? What was in our minds the basis of such an obligation? How could we be obliged? Communists don't believe in any such a thing as natural law or the law of conscience, although they seem to. They are always crying out against the injustice of capitalism, and yet, as a matter of fact, they very often say in the same breath that the very concept of justice is simply a myth devised by the ruling classes to beguile and deceive the proletariat. As far as I can remember, it seems that what most of us thought we were doing when we took that pledge was simply making a public statement, and doing so in sufficient numbers, as we hoped, to influence politicians. There was no intention of binding ourselves under any obligation. The notion never even occurred to us. Most of us probably secretly thought we were gods anyway, and therefore the only law we had to obey was our own ineffable little wills. It was sufficient to say that we did not intend to go to war for anybody, and that was enough. And if afterwards we changed our minds, well, were we not our own gods? It's a nice, complex universe, the communist universe. It gravitates towards stability and harmony and peace and order on the poles of an opportunism that is completely irresponsible and erratic. Its only law is, it will do whatever seems to be profitable to itself at the moment. However, that seems to have become the rule of all modern political parties. I have nothing to say about it. I do not profess to be either amazed or brokenhearted that such a thing should be possible. Let the dead bury their dead. They have certainly got enough to bury. It is the fruit of their philosophy that they should. And that is all they need to be reminded of. But you cannot make them believe it. I had formed a kind of ideal picture of communism in my mind, and now I found that the reality was a disappointment. I suppose my daydreams were theirs also, but neither dream is true. 
I had thought communists were calm, strong, definite people with very clear ideas as to what was wrong with everything. Men who knew the solution and were ready to pay any price to apply their remedy. And their remedy was simple and just and clean, and it would definitely solve all the problems of society and make men happy and bring the world peace. It turned out that some of them were indeed calm and strong and had the kind of peace of mind that came from definite convictions and from a real devotion to their cause out of motives of a kind of vague natural charity and a sense of justice. But the trouble with their convictions was that they were mostly strange, stubborn prejudices, hammered into their minds by the incantation of statistics and without any solid intellectual foundation. And having decided that God is an invention of the ruling classes, and having excluded him, and all moral order with him, they were trying to establish some kind of a moral system by abolishing all morality in its very source. Indeed, the very word morality was something repugnant to them. They wanted to make everything right, and they denied all the criteria given us for distinguishing between right and wrong. And so, it is an indication of the intellectual instability of communism and the weakness of its philosophical foundations that most communists are, in actual fact, noisy and shallow and violent people, torn to pieces by petty jealousies and factional hatreds and envies and strife. They shout and show off and generally give the impression that they cordially detest one another, even when they are supposed to belong to the same sect. And as for the intersectional hatred prevailing between all the different branches of radicalism, it is far bitterer and more virulent than the more or less sweeping and abstract hatred of the big general enemy, capitalism. All this is something of a clue to such things as the wholesale execution of communists who have moved their chairs to too prominent a position in the antechamber of utopia, which the Soviet Union is supposed to be. Part 3 My active part in the world revolution was not very momentous, it lasted, in all, about three months. I picketed the Casa Italiana. I went to the peace strike, and I think I made some kind of a speech in the big classroom on the second floor of the business school where the NSL had their meetings. Maybe it was a speech on communism in England, a topic of which I knew absolutely nothing. In that case, I was loyally living up the tradition of red oratory. I sold some pamphlets and magazines. I don't know what was in them, but I could gather their contents from the big black cartoons of capitalists drinking the blood of the workers. Finally, the Reds had a party, and of all places, in a Park Avenue apartment. This irony was the only amusing thing about it, and after all, it was not so ironical. It was the home of some Barnard girl who belonged to the Young Communist League, and her parents had gone away for the weekend. I could get a fair picture of them from the way the furniture looked, and from the volumes of Nietzsche and Schopenhauer and Oscar Wilde and Ibsen that filled the bookcases. And there was a big grand piano on which somebody played Beethoven while the Reds sat around on the floor. Later, we had a sort of Boy Scout campfire group in the living room, singing heavy communist songs, including that delicate anti-religious classic, There'll Be Pie in the Sky When You Die. One little fellow with buck teeth and horn-rimmed glasses pointed to two windows in a corner of one of the rooms. They commanded a whole sweep of Park Avenue in one direction and the Crosstown Street in another. What a place for a machine gun nest, he observed. The statement came from a middle-class adolescent. It was in a Park Avenue apartment. He had evidently never even seen a machine gun except in the movies. 
If there had been a revolution going on at the time, he would have probably been among the first to get his head knocked off by the revolutionists. In any case, he, like all the rest of us, had just finished making the famous Oxford Pledge that he would not fight in any war whatever. One reason why I found the party so dull was that nobody was very enthusiastic about getting something to drink except me. Finally, one of the girls encouraged me in a businesslike sort of way to go out and buy bottles of rye at a liquor store around the corner on 3rd Avenue. When I had drunk some of the contents, she invited me into a room and signed me up as a member of the Young Communist League. I took the party name of Frank Swift. When I looked up from the papers, the girl had vanished like a not-too-inspiring dream, and I went home on the Long Island Railroad with a secret name which I have been too ashamed to reveal to anyone until this moment when I am beyond humiliation. I only went to one meeting in the Young Communist League in the apartment of one of the students. It was a long discussion as to why Comrade So-and-so did not come to any of the meetings. The answer was that his father was too bourgeois to allow it. So after that, I walked out into the empty street and let the meeting end, however it would. It was good to be in the fresh air. My footsteps rang out on the dark stones. At the end of the street, the pale amber light of a barroom beckoned lovingly to me from under the steel girders of the elevated train. The place was empty. I got a glass of beer and lit a cigarette and tasted the first sweet moment of silence and relief. And that was the end of my days as a great revolutionary. I decided it would be wiser if I remained a fellow traveler. The truth is that my inspiration to do something for the good of mankind had been pretty feeble and abstract from the start. I was still interested in doing good for only one person in the world, myself. May came and all the trees on Long Island were green, and when the train from the city got past Bayside and started across the meadows to Douglaston, you could see the pale, soft haze of summer beginning to hang over the bay and count the boats that had been set afloat again after the winter and were riding jauntily at their moorings off the end of the little dock. And now in the lengthening evenings, the dining room was still light with the rays of the sun when Pop came home for dinner, slamming the front door and whooping at the dog and smacking the surface of the hall table with the evening paper to let everyone know that he had arrived. Soon John Paul was home from his school in Pennsylvania, and my exams were over, and we had nothing to do but go swimming and hang around the house playing hot records. And in the evening we would wander off to some appalling movie where we nearly died of boredom. We did not have a car, and my uncle would not let us touch the family Buick. It would not have done me any good anyway, because I never learned to drive. So most of the time we would get a ride to Great Neck, and then walk back the two or three miles along the road when the show was over. Why did we ever go to all those movies? That is another mystery. But I think John Paul and I and our various friends must have seen all the movies that were produced, without exception, from 1934 to 1937. And most of them were simply awful. What is more, they only got worse from week to week and from month to month, and day after day we hated them more. My ears are ringing with the false game music that used to announce the Fox movie tone and Paramount newsreels with the turning camera that slowly veered its aim right at your face. My mind still echoes with the tones of Pete Smith and Fitzpatrick of the Travel Talk saying, And now farewell to beautiful New South Wales. And yet I confess a secret loyalty to the memory of my great heroes, Chaplin, W.C. Fields, 
Harpo Marx, and many of the others whose names I have forgotten. But their pictures were rare, and for the rest, we found ourselves perversely admiring the villains and detesting the heroes. The truth is that the villains were almost always the better actors. We were delighted with everything they did. We were almost always in danger of being thrown out of the theater for our uproarious laughter at scenes that were supposed to be most affecting and tender and appealing to the finer elements in the human soul. The tears of Jackie Cooper, the brave smile of Alice Faye behind the bars of a jail. The movie soon turned into a kind of hell for me and my brother, and indeed for all my closest friends. We could not keep away from them. We were hypnotized by those yellow flickering lights and the big posters of Don Amici. Yet as soon as we got inside, the suffering of having to sit and look at such colossal stupidities became so acute that we sometimes actually felt physically sick. In the end, it got so that I could hardly sit through a show. It was like lighting cigarettes and taking a few puffs and throwing them away, appalled by the vile taste in one's mouth. In 1935 and 1936, without my realizing it, life was slowly, once more, becoming almost intolerable. In fall of 1935, John Paul went to Cornell and I went back to Columbia, full of all kinds of collegiate enthusiasms, so that in a moment of madness, I even gave my name for the Varsity Lightweight Crew. After a couple of days on the Harlem River and then on the Hudson, when we tried to row to Yonkers and back in what seemed to me to be a small hurricane, I decided I did not wish to die so young. And after that, carefully avoided the boathouse all the rest of the time I was in college. However, October is a fine and dangerous season in America. It is dry and cool, and the land is wild with red and gold and crimson, and all the lassitudes of August have seeped out of your blood, and you are full of ambition. It is a wonderful time to begin anything at all. You go to college, and every course in the catalog looks wonderful. The names of the subjects all seem to lay open the way to a new world. Your arms are full of new, clean notebooks, waiting to be filled. You pass through the doors of the library, and the smell of thousands of well-kept books makes your head swim with a clean and subtle pleasure. You have a new hat, a new sweater perhaps, or a whole new suit. Even the nickels and quarters in your pocket feel new, and the buildings shine in the glorious sun. In the season of resolutions and ambitions in 1935, I signed up for courses in Spanish and German, and geology, and constitutional law, and French Renaissance literature, and forget what else besides. And I started to work for the Spectator, and the yearbook, and the review. And I continued to work for Jester, as I had already done the spring before and I found myself pledging one of the fraternities. The fraternity was a big, gloomy house behind the new library. On the ground floor, there was a pool room as dark as a morgue. A dining room and some stairs led up to a big, dark, wainscoted living room where they held dances and beer parties. Above that were two floors of bedrooms where telephones were constantly ringing, and all day long somebody or other was singing in the shower bath. And there was somewhere in the building a secret room which I must not reveal to you, reader, at any price, even at the cost of life itself. And there I was eventually initiated. The initiation, with its various tortures, lasted about a week. And I cheerfully accepted penances, which, if they were imposed at a monastery for a supernatural motive and for some real reason, instead of for no reason at all, 
would cause such an uproar that all religious houses would be closed and the Catholic Church would probably have a hard time staying in the country. When that was over, I had a gold and enamel pin on my shirt. My name was engraved on the back of it, and I was quite proud of it for about a year, and then it went to the laundry on a shirt and never came back. I suppose there were two reasons why I thought I ought to join a fraternity. One was the false one that I thought would help me to make connections, as the saying goes, and get a marvelous job on leaving college. The other, truer one, was that I imagined that I would thus find a multitude of occasions for parties and diversions, and that I would meet many very interesting young ladies at the dances that would be held in that mausoleum. Both these hopes turned out to be illusory. As a matter of fact, I think the only real explanation was that I was feeling the effects of October. Anyway, when John Paul went to Cornell, the whole family except me drove up to Ithaca and the Buick and came back with words and concepts that filled the house with a kind of collegiate tension for a couple of weeks to come. Everybody was talking about football and courses and fraternities. As a matter of fact, John Paul's first year at Cornell turned out to be sad in the same way my first year at Cambridge, a thing that was not long in becoming apparent when the bills he could not pay began to show up at home. But it was even more obvious to me when I saw him again. He was naturally a happy and optimistic sort of person, and he did not easily get depressed. He had a clear, quick intelligence, and a character as sensitive as it was well-balanced. Now his intelligence seemed a little fogged with some kind of obscure interior confusion, and his happiness was perverted by a sad, lost restlessness. Although he maintained all his interests and increased them, the increase was in extent, not in depth, and the result was a kind of scattering of powers, a dissipation of the mind and will in a variety of futile aims. He stood for some time with great uncertainty, on the threshold of a fraternity house at Cornell, and even let them put a pledge pin on him. And then after a couple of weeks, he took it off again and ran away. And with three friends, he rented a house on one of those steep, shady Ithaca streets. And after that, the year was a long and sordid riot, from which he derived no satisfaction. They called the place Grand Hotel, and had stationery printed with that title, on which desultory and fragmentary letters would come to Douglaston, and fill everyone with unquiet. When he came back from Cornell, John Paul looked tired and disgusted. I suppose it's true, at least theoretically, that the brothers watch over one another and help one another along in the fraternity house. In my fraternity house at Columbia, I know that the wiser members used to get together and shake their heads a little when somebody was carrying his debauchery too far. And when there was any real trouble, the concern of the brothers was sincere and dramatic, but it was useless. And there's always trouble in a fraternity house. The trouble, which came in the year after I was initiated, was the disappearance of one of the brothers, whom we shall call Fred. Fred was a tall, stoop-shouldered, melancholy individual, with dark hair growing low on his brows. He never had much to say, and he liked to go apart and drink in mournful solitude. The only vivid thing I remember about him was that he stood over me during one of the peculiar ceremonies of the initiation, when all the pledges had to stuff themselves with bread and milk for a special reason. And while I tried with despairing efforts to get the huge mouthful swallowed down, this Fred was standing over me with woeful cries of, Eat! 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 It must have been sometime after Christmas that he disappeared. I came into the house one night, and they were sitting around in the leather chairs talking earnestly. Where's Fred? was the burden of the discussion. 
He had not been seen anywhere for a couple of days. Would his family be upset if someone called up his home to see if he was there? Evidently, it had to be done. He had not gone home either. One of the brothers had long since visited all his usual haunts. People tried to reconstruct the situation in which he had last been seen. With what dispositions had he last walked out the front door? Well, the usual ones, of course. Silence, melancholy, the probable intention of getting drunk. A week passed, and Fred was not found. The earnest concern of the brothers was fruitless. The subject of Fred was more or less dropped, and after a month, most of us had forgotten it. After two months, the whole thing was finally settled. They found Fred, somebody told me. Yes, where? In Brooklyn. Is he all right? No, he's dead. They found him in the Gowanus Canal. What did he do, jump in? Nobody knows what he did. He's been there a long time. How long? I don't know, a couple of months. They figured out who it was from the fillings in his teeth. It was a picture that was not altogether vague to me. Our famous course in contemporary civilization had involved me one winter afternoon in a visit to the Bellevue Morgue, where I had seen rows and rows of ice boxes containing the blue swollen corpses of drowned men, along with all the other human refuse of the big evil city. The dead that had been picked up at the streets, ruined by raw alcohol. The dead that had been found starved and frozen, lying where they had tried to sleep in a pile of old newspapers. The pauper, dead from Randall's Island. The dope fiend, dead. The murdered, dead. The run over, the suicides, the dead Negroes and Chinese, the dead of venereal disease, the dead from unknown causes, the killed by gangsters. They would all be shipped for burial up the East River in a barge to one of those islands where they also burned garbage. Contemporary Civilization One of the things we saw on the way out of the morgue was the hand of a man pickled in a jar, brown and vile. They were not sure whether he was a criminal or not, and they wanted to have at least part of him after they had sent the rest of him up to the gats. In the autopsy room, a man on the table with his trunk wide open pointed his sharp, dead nose at the ceiling. The doctors held his liver and kidneys in their hands and sprayed them over with a trickle of water from a little rubber hose. I have never forgotten the awful, clammy silence of the city morgue at Bellevue, where they collect the bodies of those who died of contemporary civilization, like Fred. Nevertheless, during that year I was so busy and so immersed in activities and occupations that I had no time to think for very long on these things. The energy of that golden October and the stimulation of the cold, bright winter days when the wind swept as sharp as knives from the shining palisades kept driving me through the year in what seemed to be fine condition. I had never done so many different things at the same time or with such apparent success. I had discovered in myself something of a capacity for work and activity and for enjoyment that I had never dreamed of. And everything began to come easy, as the saying goes. It was not that I was really studying hard or working hard, but all of a sudden I'd fallen into a kind of mysterious knack of keeping a hundred different interests going in the air at the same time. It was kind of a stupendous juggling act, a tour de force, and what surprised me most was that I managed to keep it up without collapsing. In the first place, I was carrying about 18 points in my courses, the average amount. I had found out the simplest way of fulfilling the minimum requirements for each one. Then there was the fourth floor. 
The fourth floor of John Jay Hall was the place where all the offices of the student publications and the glee club and the student board and all the rest were to be found. It was the noisiest and most agitated part of the campus. It was not gay exactly, and I hardly ever saw anywhere antipathies and contentions and jealousies at once so petty, so open, and so sharp. The whole floor was constantly seething with the exchange of insults from office to office. Constantly, all day long, from morning to night, people were writing articles and drawing cartoons, calling each other fascists. Or else they were calling one another up on the phone and assuring one another in the coarsest terms of their undying hatred. And it was all intellectual and verbal, as vicious as it could be. But it never became concrete, and it never descended into physical rage. For this reason, I think that it was all more or less of a game which everybody played for purposes that were remotely aesthetic. The campus was supposed to be in that year in a state of intellectual ferment. Everybody felt, and even said, that there were an unusual number of brilliant and original minds in the college. I think that it was to some extent true. Ad Reinhardt was certainly the best artist that had ever drawn for Jester, perhaps for any other college magazine. His issues of Jester were real magazines. I think that in cover designs and layouts, he could have given lesson to some of the art editors downtown. Everything he put out was original, and it was also funny, because for the first time in years, Jester had some real writers contributing to it, and it was not just an anthology of the same stale and obscene jokes that had been circulating through the sluggish system of American college magazines for two generations. By now, Reinhardt had graduated, and so had the editor of the 1935 Spectator, Jim Weschler. My first approach to the fourth floor had been rather circumspect. After the manner of Cambridge, I went to my advisor, Professor McKee, and asked him how to go about it, and he gave me a letter of introduction to Leonard Robinson, who was editor of the Columbia Review, the literary magazine. I don't know what Robinson would have made of a letter of introduction. Anyway, I never got to a meeting with him after all. When I went to the review office, I gave the note to Bob Giraud, the associate editor, and he looked at it and scratched his head some bit and told me to write something if I got an idea. By 1936, Leonard Robinson had vanished. I always heard a lot about Robinson, and it all adds up to nothing very clear, so that I have always had the impression that he somehow lives in the trees. I pray that he may go to heaven. As for review... Robert Paul Smith and Robert Giroux were both editing it together, and it was good. I don't know whether you would use the term ferment in their case, but Smith and Giroux were both good writers. Also, Giroux was a Catholic, and a person strangely placid for the fourth floor. He had no part in its feuds, and as a matter of fact, you did not see him around there very much. John Berryman was more or less the star on review that year. He was the most earnest-looking man on the campus. There was not an office on that floor where I did not have something to do, except the glee club and the student board and the big place where all the football coaches had their desks. I was writing stories for Spectator and columns that were supposed to be funny. I was writing things for the yearbook and trying to sell copies of it, a thankless task. The yearbook was the one thing nobody wanted. It was expensive and dull. Of this, I eventually became editor, without any benefit to myself or to the book or to Columbia or to the world. I was never particularly drawn to the varsity show, but they had a piano in their room, and the room was almost always empty. So I used to go in there and play furious jazz after the manner I had taught myself, 
a manner which offended every ear but my own. It was a way of letting off steam, a form of athletics, if you like. I have ruined more than one piano by this method. The place where I was busiest was the jester office. Nobody really worked there. They just congregated about noontime and beat violently with the palms of their hands on the big empty filing cabinets, making a thunderous sound that echoed up and down the corridor and was sometimes answered from the review office across the hall. There I usually came and drew forth from the bulging leather bag of books that I carried, copy and drawings which I put into the editor's hands. The editor that year was Herb Jacobson, and he printed all my worst cartoons very large in the most prominent parts of the magazine. I thought I had something to be proud of when I became art editor of Jester at the end of that year. Robert Lax was to be editor and Ralph Toledano managing editor, and we got along well together. The next year, Jester was well put together because of Toledano and well written because of Lax, and sometimes popular with the masses because of me. When it was really funny, it was not popular at all. The only really funny issues were mostly the work of Lax and Bob Gibney, the fruit of ideas that came to them at four o'clock in the morning in their room on the top floor of Fernald Hall. The chief advantage of Jester was that it paid most of our bills for tuition. We were happy about it all and wandered around the campus with little golden crowns dangling in our watch chains. Indeed, that was the only reason why I had a watch chain. I did not have a watch. I have barely begun to list all the things that occupied me in those days. For example, I gave my name to Miss Wegner at the appointments office. Miss Wegner was, and I hope she still is, a kind of genius. She sat all day long behind her desk in that small, neat office in the alumni house. No matter how many people she talked to, she always looked unruffled and at peace. Every time you went to see her, one or two phone calls would come in, and she would make a note on a little pad of paper. In summer, she never seemed to be worried by the hot weather, and she always smiled at you with a smile that was at the same moment efficient and kind, pleasant and yet a little impersonal. She was another one who had a vocation and was living up to it. One of the best jobs she ever got for me was that of guide and interpreter on the observation roof of the RCA building, Rockefeller Center. It was an easy job, so easy in fact that it was boring. You simply had to stand there and talk to the people who came pouring out of the elevator with all their questions. And for this, you got $27.5 a week, which was very good pay in 1936. I also worked in another office in Radio City for some people who handled publicity for all the manufacturers of paper cups and containers. For them, I did cartoons that said you would surely get trench mouth if you ever drank out of an ordinary glass. For each cartoon, I was paid $6. It made me feel like an executive to go walking in and out the doors of the RCA building with my pockets full of money. Miss Wagner would also send me off on the subway with little slips of paper with the addresses of apartments where I would interview rich Jewish ladies about tutoring their children in Latin, which meant I got two and a half dollars an hour for sitting with them and doing their homework. I also handed in my name for the cross-country team. The fact that the coach was not sorry to get me is sufficient indication of one reason why we were the worst college cross-country team in the East that year. And so in my afternoons, I would run around and around South Field on the center path. And when winter came, I would go round and around the board track until I had blisters all over the soles of my feet and was so lame I could hardly walk. Occasionally, I'd go up to Van Cortland Park and run along the sandy and rocky paths through the woods. When we raced any other college, I was never absolutely the last one home. 
there were always two or three other Columbia men behind me. I was one of those who never came in until the crowd had lost interest and had begun to disperse. Perhaps I would have been more of a success as a long-distance runner if I had gone into training and given up smoking and drinking and kept regular hours. Uh, But no, three or four nights a week, my fraternity brothers and I would go flying down in the black and roaring subway to 52nd Street, where we would crawl around the tiny, noisy, and expensive nightclubs that had flowered on the sites of the old speakeasies in the cellars of those dirty brownstone houses. There we would sit for hours, packed in those strange dark rooms, shoulder to shoulder with a lot of surly strangers and their girls, while the whole place rocked and surged with the storms of jazz. There was no room to dance. We just huddled there between the blue walls, shoulder to shoulder and elbow to elbow, crouching and deafened and taciturn. If you move your arm to get your drink, you nearly knock the next man off his stool. And the waiters fought their way back and forth through the sea of unfriendly heads, taking away the money of all the people. It was not that we got drunk. No, it was the strange business of sitting in a room full of people and drinking without much speech and letting yourself be deafened by the jazz that throbbed through the whole sea of bodies, binding them all together in a kind of fluid medium. It was a strange animal travesty of mysticism, sitting in those booming rooms with the noise pouring through you and the rhythm jumping and throbbing in the marrow of your bones. You couldn't call any of that, per se, a mortal sin. We just sat there, that was all. If we got hangovers the next day, it was more because of the smoking and the nervous exhaustion than anything else. How often after a night of this I missed all the trains home to Long Island and went and slept on a couch somewhere at the fraternity house or in an apartment of somebody I knew around town. What was worst of all was going home on the subway on the chance that one might catch a bus at Flushing. There's nothing so dismal as the Flushing bus station in the gray, silent hours just before the coming of the dawn. There were always at least one or two of those same characters whose prototypes I have seen dead in the morgue, and perhaps there would be a pair of drunken soldiers trying to get back to Fort Totten. Among all these I stood weary and ready to fall, lighting the fortieth or fiftieth cigarette of the day, the one that took the last shreds of lining off my throat. The thing that depressed me most of all was the shame and despair that invaded my whole nature when the sun came up and all the laborers were going to work, men healthy and awake and quiet, with their eyes clear and some rational purpose before them. This humiliation and sense of my own misery and of the fruitlessness of what I had done was the nearest I could get to contrition. It was the reaction of nature. It proved nothing except that I was still at least morally alive, or rather, that I still had some faint capacity for moral life in me. The term morally alive might obscure the fact that I was spiritually dead. I had been that long since. Part 4 In fall of 1936, Pop died. The manner of his death was this. I had been on a geology field trip in Pennsylvania, and had come back late one Sunday after a long cold ride through New Jersey, back from the coal mines and slate quarries in an open ford. The icy wind of the Delaware water gap was still in my flesh. I went to bed without seeing anybody. They were all in their rooms by the time I got home. The next morning I looked in Pop's room, and he was sitting up in bed looking strangely unhappy and confused. 
How do you feel, I said. Rotten, he answered. There was nothing surprising about that. He was always getting ill. I suppose he had caught another cold. I said, take some more sleep then. Yes, he said. I guess I will. I went back into the bathroom and hastened to dress and drink my coffee and run for the train. That afternoon I was on the track in the pale November sun taking an easy workout. I came down the shady side of the field in front of the library. There was one of the juniors who worked for the yearbook standing behind the high wire fence at the corner nearest John Jay where the bushes and poplar trees were. As I came down the bend, he called out to me, and I went over to the fence. Your aunt was on the phone just now, he told me. She said your grandfather is dead. There was nothing I could say. I trotted back along the field and went down and took a quick shower and got into my clothes and went home. There was no train but one of those slow ones that ambled out onto the island half empty with long stops at every station. But I knew there was no particular hurry. I could not bring him back to life. Poor old Pop. I was not surprised that he was dead or that he had died that way. I suppose his heart had failed. It was typical of him, that kind of death. He was always in a hurry, always ahead of time. And now, after a whole lifetime of impatience, waiting for a bonamaman to get ready to go to the theater, or to come to dinner, or to come down and open the Christmas presents, after all that, he had brooked no delay about dying. He had slipped out on us, in his sleep, without premeditation, on the spur of the moment. I would miss Pop. In the last year or two, we had drawn rather close together. He often got me to come to lunch with him downtown, and there he would tell me all his troubles and talk over the prospects for my future. I'd returned to the old idea of becoming a newspaper man. There was a great deal of simplicity about Pop. It was a simplicity, an ingenuousness that belonged to his nature. And it was something peculiarly American, or at least it belonged to the Americans of his generation, this kind and warm-hearted and vast and universal optimism. When I got to the house, I knew where I would find the body. I went up to his bedroom and opened the door. The only shock was to find that the windows were all open and the room was full of the cold November air. Pop, who in his life had feared all drafts and had lived in overheated houses, now lay under a sheet in his icy cold death chamber. It was the first death that had been in the house that he had built for his family 25 years before. Now a strange thing happened. Without my having thought about it or debating it in my mind, I closed the door and got on my knees by the bed and prayed. I suppose it was just the spontaneous response of my love for poor Pop, the obvious way to do something for him, to acknowledge all his goodness to me. And yet I had seen other deaths without praying or being even drawn to pray. Two or three summers before, an old relative of mine had died, and the only thing that had occurred to me was the observation that her lifeless corpse was no more than a piece of furniture. I didn't feel that there was anybody there, only a thing. This did not teach me what had taught Aristotle about the existence of the soul. But now, I only wanted to pray. Unfortunately, I knew that Bonamaman was going to come in and tell me to look at the body, and soon I heard her steps in the hall. I got off my knees before she opened the door. Aren't you going to look at him? she said to me. 
I said nothing. She raised the corner of the sheet, and I looked at Pop's dead face. It was pale, and it was dead. She let the sheet fall back, and together we walked out of the room. And I sat and talked to her for an hour or so while the sun was going down. Everybody knew that this would be the end of Bonamaman too. Although our family had been one of those curious modern households in which everybody was continually arguing and fighting and in which there had been for years an obscure and complicated network of contentions and suppressed jealousies, Bonamaman had been tremendously attached to her husband. She soon began to languish, but it was months before she finally died. First, she fell down and broke her arm. It mended slowly and painfully, but as it did, she turned into a bent and silent old woman with a rather haggard face. When the summer came, she could no longer get out of bed. Then came the alarms at night when we thought she was dying and stood for hours by her bed, listening to the harsh gasp in her throat. And then, too, I was praying, looking into the mute, helpless face she turned toward my face. This time I was more conscious of what I was doing, and I prayed for her to live, although in some sense it was obviously better that she should die. I was saying within myself, You who made her, let her go on living. The reason I said this was that life was the only good I was certain of, and if life was the one big value, the one chief reality, its continuance depended on the will, otherwise why pray, of the supreme principle of all life, the ultimate reality, he who is pure being, he who is life itself, he who simply is. By praying, I was implicitly acknowledging all this, and now twice I had prayed, although I continued to think I believed in nothing. Bonamaman lived. I hope it had something to do with grace, with something that was given to Bonamaman from God in those last weeks that she continued to live, speechless and helpless on her bed, to save her soul. Finally, in August, she died, and they took her away and made an end of her body like all the rest. That was summer of 1937. Pop had died in November 1936. Already in that fall, I had begun to feel ill. Still, I kept on trying to do all the things I was doing, following my courses, editing the yearbook, working, running on the cross-country team without going into training. One day, we raced army in Princeton. I was not last, but as usual, I was about 23rd or 4th out of 30 or so. When I got to the end of the course... I simply fell down and lay on the ground, waiting for my stomach to turn inside out within me. I felt so bad I did not even mind what the people thought. I did not try to look brave or to make any jokes about myself or to hide the way I felt. I lay there until I felt better. Then I got up and went away and never came back to the locker rooms again. The coach didn't bother to come looking for me. Nobody tried to persuade me to go back to the team. We were all equally satisfied. I was through. However, it did not help much to get rid of this burden. One day, I was coming into town on the Long Island train. I had a bag full of work that was already late and had to be handed in that day. After that, I had a date with someone with whom I liked very much to have a date. While the train was going through the freight yards in Long Island City, my head suddenly began to swim. It was not that I was afraid of vomiting, but it was as if some center of balance within me had been unexpectedly removed, 
and as if I was about to plunge into a blind abyss of emptiness without end. I got up and stood in the gap between the cars to get some air, but my knees were shaking so much that I was afraid I would slip through the chains between the cars and end up under the wheels. So I got back and propped myself against the wall and held on. The strange vertigo came and went while the train dived into the tunnel under the river and everything around me went dark and began to roar. I think the business had passed over by the time we got to the station. I was scared, and the first thing that occurred to me was to go and find the house physician in the Pennsylvania Hotel. He examined me and listened to my heart and took my blood pressure and gave me something to drink and told me I was overstimulated. What did I do for a living, he asked. I told him I went to college and did quite a few things besides. He told me to give some of them up, and then he suggested that I ought to go to bed and get some sleep and then go home when I felt better. So next I found myself in a room in the Pennsylvania Hotel, lying on a bed, trying to go to sleep. But I couldn't. It was a small, narrow room, rather dark, even though the window seemed to occupy most of the wall that was in front of me. You could hear the noise of the traffic coming up from far below on 32nd Street, but the room itself was quiet, with a quietness that was strange, ominous. I lay on the bed and listened to the blood pounding rapidly inside my head. I could hardly keep my eyes closed, and yet I did not want to open them either. I was afraid that if I even looked at the window, the strange spinning inside my head would begin again. That window! It was huge! It seemed to go right down to the floor. Maybe the force of gravity would draw the whole bed with me on it to the edge of that abyss and spill me headlong into the emptiness. And far, far away in my mind was a little dry, mocking voice that said, What if you threw yourself out the window? I turned over on the bed and tried to go to sleep. But the blood drummed and drummed in my head. I could not sleep. I thought to myself, I wonder if I'm having a nervous breakdown. Then again I saw that window. The mere sight of it made my head spin. The mere thought that I was high above the ground almost knocked me out again. The doctor came in and saw me lying there wide awake and said, I told you to go to sleep. I couldn't sleep, I said. He gave me a bottle of medicine and went away. All I wanted was to get out of that room. When he was gone, I got up and went downstairs and paid for the room and took a train home. I did not feel bad on this train going home. The house was empty. I laid down on a thing in the living room that they called a chaise lounge and went to sleep. When Else came home, she said, I thought you were going to stay uptown for dinner. But I said, I felt so bad I came home. What was the matter with me? I never found out. I I suppose it was a sort of nervous breakdown. In connection with it, I developed gastritis and thought I was beginning to get a stomach ulcer. The doctor gave me a diet and some medicine. The effect of both was more psychological than anything else. Every time I went to eat anything, I studied what was there and only chose certain things and ate them with a sort of conscious scrupulosity. I remember one of the things I was told to eat. It was ice cream. I had no objection to eating ice cream, especially in summer. How delightful, not only to enjoy this dish, but also to feed my imagination with thoughts of its healthfulness and wholesomeness. I could also see it kindly and blandly and mercifully covering the incipient ulcer with its cool, health-giving substance. The whole result of this diet was to teach me this trivial amusement, 
this cult of foods that I imagined to be bland and healthful. It made me think about myself. It was a game, a hobby, something like psychoanalysis had been. I even sometimes fell into the discussion of foods and their values and qualities in relation to health, as if I were an authority in the subject. And for the rest, I went around with my mind in my stomach and ate quarts and quarts of ice cream. Now my life was dominated by something I had never really known before. Fear. Was it really something altogether new? No, for fear is inseparable from pride and lust. They may hide it for a time, but it is the reverse of the coin. The coin had turned over, and I was looking at the other side. The eagle that was to eat my insides for a year or so. Cheap Prometheus that I had become. It was humiliating. The strange wariness that accompanied all my actions. This self-conscious watchfulness. It was a humiliation that I deserved more than I knew. There was more justice in it than I could understand. I had refused to pay any attention to the moral laws upon which all our vitality and sanity depend, and now I was reduced to the condition of a silly old woman, worrying about a lot of imaginary rules of health, standards of food value, and a thousand minute details of conduct that were in themselves completely ridiculous and stupid, and yet which haunted me with vague and terrific sanctions. If I eat this, I may go out of my mind. If I do not eat that... I may die in the night. I had become at last a true child of the modern world, completely tangled up in petty and useless concerns with myself, and almost incapable of even considering or understanding anything that was really important to my own true interests. Here I was, scarcely four years after I had left Oakham and walked out into the world that I thought I was going to ransack and rob of all its pleasures and satisfactions. I had done what I intended, and now I found that it was I who was emptied and robbed and gutted. What a strange thing. In filling myself, I had emptied myself. In grasping things, I had lost everything. In devouring pleasures and joys, I had found only distress and anguish and fear. And now finally, as a piece of poetic justice, when I was reduced to this extremity of misery and humiliation, I fell into a love affair in which I was at last treated in the way I had treated not a few people in these last few years. This girl lived on my own street, and I had the privilege of seeing her drive off with my rivals ten minutes after she had flatly refused to go out with me, asserting that she was tired and wanted to stay home. She did not even bother to conceal the fact that she found me amusing when there was nothing better to occupy her mind. She used to regale me with the descriptions of what she considered to be a good time and of the kind of people she admired and liked. They were precisely the shallow and superficial ones that gave me goose flesh when I saw them sitting around in the stork club, and it was the will of God that for my punishment I should take all this in the most abject meekness and sit and beg like some kind of pet dog until I got a pat on the head or some small sign of affection. This could not last long, and it did not, but I came out of it chastened and abject, although not nearly as abject as I ought to have been, and returned to the almost equal humiliation of my quarts of ice cream. Such was the death of the hero, the great man I had wanted to be. Externally, I thought, I was a big success. Everybody knew who I was at Columbia. Those who had not yet found out soon did when the yearbook came out full of pictures of myself. 
It was enough to tell me more about me than I intended, I suppose. They did not have to be very acute to see through the dumb, self-satisfied expression in all those portraits. The only thing that surprises me is that no one openly reproached or mocked me for such ignominious vanity. No one threw any eggs at me. Nobody said a word. And yet I know how capable they were of saying many words, not tastefully chosen, perhaps, but deadly enough. The wounds were within me. The wounds within me were, I suppose, enough. I was bleeding to death. If my nature had been more stubborn in clinging to the pleasures that disgusted me, if I had refused to admit that I was beaten by this futile search for satisfaction where it could not be found, and if my moral and nervous constitution had not caved in under the weight of my own emptiness, who can tell what would eventually have happened to me? Who could tell where I would have ended? I had come very far to find myself in this blind alley, but the very anguish and helplessness of my position was something to which I rapidly succumbed, and it was my defeat that was to be the occasion of my rescue. End of book one.